Well, prior to the Christmas season, we were working through the book of 1 Corinthians. We're going back to that book now, and we're going to finish it before starting a new sermon series in February. Today, as I said, we're in chapter 14. And we've come into a section of the book where Paul is addressing problems in the church's weekly worship service. Apparently, some of the people in the church were having you know, very powerful experiences, spiritual experiences uh, in worship, which led them to start praying aloud in unknown languages, a.k.a. speaking in tongues. And then um, there were other people who felt like they had a word from God, uh, a word from the Lord, something they sensed God wanted them to say, which you know may be prophecy. And they would stand up to say it, and then somebody else m- might um, interrupt them and say, well, I now have a word from the Lord in it. Like, we're kind of piecemealing together what was going on, but the, the overall impression that we have is that the, the worship service was chaotic. It was, it was totally chaotic. And if you were a visitor to the church at Corinth on a Sunday, it would have been, uh, frankly, distracting and off-putting. And Paul's response, we're going to read it in just a moment, is basically like, look, I speak in tongues more than all of you. Um, but if your speaking in tongues distracts other people or, or freaks them out, or if you're doing it for like self-performance purposes, sort of to show off your spirituality, then knock it off. <laughs> um, I'd much rather you speak a word of prophecy in a known, intelligible language than you know, speak uh, 10,000 words in a tongue. And so that's a, that's a passage. Um, the sermon, a sermon on tongues and prophecy. I can't think of a less Presbyterian passage in all the Bible. So my background is in Presbyterian Christianity. Our church is Presbyterian. And yet, could anything be less relevant to us than this? Because nobody in a Presbyterian church speaks in tongues and nobody prophesies. And so what are we supposed to, to do with this? I was very tempted to skip the chapter entirely, but, um, but, no, I really, I think there is something here for us to consider. Um, before I read, one last thought. Do you know, okay, obviously the church in America is, is going through a, a very interesting, challenging uh, transition period. Over the last 30 years, every major uh, denomination in America has decreased and decreased substantially. I mean, Methodist, Episcopalian, Presbyterian, Baptist, Every single one of them has decreased like more than 30%, at least 30%, except for one denomination. Anybody got a hazard a guess which denomination that is? The Assemblies of God, uh, which has over the last three decades grown by more than 50%. And the Assemblies of God is the one denomination that you're most likely to hear people on a Sunday morning prophesying or, or speaking in tongues. Doesn't that, doesn't that make you at least scratch your head and go, hmm, <laughs> Are we missing something? Like, are we missing something? The, the branch of Christianity worldwide that is spreading faster than anything else is, is, of course, Pentecostal Christianity. Are we, or I should maybe say me, because I don't need to assume that you're a Presbyterian Christian, uh, am I missing something? And that's really the, the thought that has been in the back of my head all week as I studied the passage. Um, I'll be honest, I have more questions and answers from the passage, but let's go ahead and read it. 14, verse 1. Pursue love 
and desire spiritual gifts, and especially that you may prophesy. For the person who speaks in a tongue is, is not speaking to people, but to God, since no one understands him. He, he speaks mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the person who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouragement, and consolation. Uh, the person who speaks in a tongue builds himself up, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. I, I wish all of you spoke in tongues, but even more than that, that you prophesied. You know, the person who prophesies is, is greater than the person who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets so that the church may be built up. So now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you speaking in tongues, uh, how will I benefit you unless I speak to you with a, a revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? Uh, even, and here he goes three different metaphors, even lifeless instruments that produce sounds, whether flute or harp, if they don't make a distinction in the notes, how will what is played on the flute or the harp be recognized? That's the first illustration. The second, um, go back real quick to uh, the previous one. Uh, it, in fact, if the, if the bugle makes an unclear sound, who will prepare for battle? That's the second. And then the third one in verse 9. In the same way, unless you use your tongue for intelligible speech, how will what is spoken be known? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different kinds of languages in the world. None, none is without meaning. Therefore, if I don't know the meaning of, of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker will be a foreigner to me. So also you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, seek to excel in building up the church. Therefore, the person who speaks in a tongue, they should pray that, that he can interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. What, what then? I will pray with the Spirit, and I will also pray with my understanding. I will sing praise with the Spirit, and I also will sing praise with my understanding. Otherwise, if you praise with the Spirit, how will the outsider say amen at your giving of thanks, since he does not know what you are saying? For you may very well be giving thanks, but the other person is not being built up. You know, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. And is that how it ends? <laughs> uh, yet, I should have gone on verse 19. Yet in the church, I would rather speak five words with my understanding in order to teach others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. This is God's word. Uh, let's pray again. We do thank you, Father, for your word. And we pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts and minds by the, the power of the Holy Spirit that this very challenging passage of Scripture would... Um, would grow our grow us up in our faith and in our knowledge of Jesus Christ, and and that's what we desire most of all is that we would see Jesus and we would use whatever gifts that Jesus provides to us to build each other up in love. And we ask this in His name, Amen. Woo, that was a mouthful, long passage, a, a lot going on there. Here's the big question I want us to try and grapple with today: Should Christians? today earnestly desire spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy? I, I would hazard a guess that that is a question that uh, has not been asked in hardly any Presbyterian churches. Should we desire? Should we desire the gift of prophecy first? And then, you know, secondarily, given the fact that Paul, he spoke in tongues a lot, uh, should Christians earnestly desire the gift of speaking in tongues too? I can tell you where I have been and where I am today. When I graduated seminary in 2002, my answer to those two questions was 
No and hell no. <laughs> right? No and hell no. I mean, there's absolutely no way. Like, uh, I mean, if God has already given us his revelation in the Bible, then uh, I can't imagine that there's prophecies still open today. I, I, I grew up in Mesa. You know, the, the third or fourth LDS temple was built there. You know, like the LDS are really big into having prophets who are delivering new revelation. I'm like, no. No way. I, the, the gift of prophecy doesn't exist anymore. You know, and we had in our own life some pretty bad experiences with people who made prophecies and said, you know, you need to move to this place with your family. You need to go and study in this place. This is the word of the Lord. We were burned by those things. And, and frankly, we were burned by others who, uh, who said that it's very important for you to speak in tongues in order to be a truly mature Christian. And so I'm like, no way. It's over. It, tongues, whatever people are doing in tongues today is just made up. Well, I'm not so sure <laughs> any longer. What are tongues? What is Paul talking about? I had Jenna read from Acts chapter 2 just a minute ago. It's the day of Pentecost. It's that sort of first birthday of the church where the Holy Spirit falls upon Jewish Christians and they begin to speak in languages that they had never studied before. It's very clear that there are people all over from the Roman Empire who have come to the city of Jerusalem to, to worship and they speak all different kinds of dialects. And on the morning of Pentecost, these Christians walk out and they are speaking, you know, perfect Elamitish and perfect, I don't remember some of the other uh, nations that are listed in, in there, but they're perfect, they're speaking with perfect diction and, and perfect pronunciation, languages that they have never studied before. And I've always assumed that that's exactly what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians. You know, the, Here's how the argument goes. Paul is speaking of human languages unknown by the speaker. And when you go to, when you go to a, a charismatic church today or a Pentecostal church, churches where they speak in tongues and they deliver prophecy, what you find is they're not doing that, right? Uh, researchers, are, researchers have actually gone into those churches to try and de determine what is actually happening. And what they always conclude is what's happening is people are not here like speaking Mandarin. They're not talking Mandarin. They're not talking Urdu. They're not talking Tamil. They're not talking Arabic. They, they are doing what we would call free vocalization. Free vocalization. It's like a, a form of sounds that's kind, that kind of seems like a language, but it's normally experienced by that person as a prayer language or as a stream of praise. And that language that they are speaking, uh, it they don't know what it means. It largely bypasses the, their conscious brain. It's a function of the unconscious mind. And so they can't, they can't articulate precisely what it is that's being said, but they know, they feel very deeply in their spirit, a, a sense of, of love for God and adoration and gratitude for God welling up inside of them when they, when they speak in this way. And so what, what the researchers have found is that this is a non-human private prayer language that nobody else in the room understands or knows what's what's going on. Somebody described it to me this way. He said, uh, when, Brad, <clears throat> when, when I pray in tongues, it's kind of like I'm, uh, I'm speaking or I'm singing in jazz. 
As I sit down at a keyboard and I don't have any music in front of me, but I start, you know, knocking out some keys or I, I start scatting, do da do da, you know, scatting and jazz. And it's like you're singing, you're praying to God and you can't translate it yourself, but you sense like, this is what is on my heart, Lord, and I'm pouring it out to you. Now, is that what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 14? Let's look at those three metaphors that he used to try to describe the phenomenon that was going on there. So he uses three main points, three main metaphors rather, to make the point that in worship, we should prioritize intelligibility over spiritual uh, fanfare. And so he uses the first example uh, in verse 7. He speaks of, you know, a musical instrument like a flute or a lyre, it needs to make a clear noise. You know, the flute was the most common wind, wind instrument of the time. But if the person is playing the flute and they don't know how to actually sound the note, then it's going to sound like a squawk, right? Or if you're trying to play the lyre or, and, and you don't know how to truly pluck it the right way, maybe the guitar the right way, it's, it's not going to, you're not going to know what tune is supposed to be played. It's just going to come out like a sound, he says. The second one is he uses the military metaphor, uh, blowing the trumpet, verse 8, or blowing the bugle. When somebody does that, it's, it's supposed to make people get ready for their various military tasks. And he's using that as an example of, you know, clear, distinct notes that summon everybody for the common purpose. And then the third one, he says, suppose in verse 10 and 11, you're at a great assembly and every language is being spoken in that assembly except your own language. And you can't understand any of the others. Then what that does is it makes you feel like an outsider, doesn't it? It makes you feel so out of place. You are, he says, a foreigner to everyone else. You are being excluded from what is going on. Now, why do I go back to these metaphors? Simply to ask you the question, what makes more sense of those metaphors? What phenomena makes more sense of those metaphors? Uh, someone who is speaking in a known language, like Urdu or Tamil or Mandarin, uh, in the room, or, uh, or I should say, a known language that there's possibility somebody else in the room might be might know that language, uh, or somebody who is speaking in a non-human private prayer language that probably sounds like gibberish to everyone else. It just seems to me that the latter of the two makes a lot more sense than, than the former. You know, and this was really a shock to me because, as I said, I've always thought that known languages of Acts 2 must have been what he's talking about in 1 Corinthians. But, but actually, when you do a deeper dive into both of those passages, you find a series of contrasts. Here they are. Tongues in the book of Acts were immediately understood by those who heard them, whereas tongues in 1 Corinthians, it always required interpretation. And usually, it, the interpretation that was required was, he says, you need to pray to God to interpret your own language. You're supposed to interpret yourself. Second contrast, tongues in Acts, it demonstrated God's blessing as he basically reverses the curse of Babel from the book of Genesis and everybody is able to hear the wonders of God in their own language. Tongues in 1 Corinthians, what Paul will show later in this chapter is that actually it demonstrated judgment as those who speak other languages don't understand what's being said. And he quotes later from the book of Isaiah. 
Next, tongues in uh, Acts function like prophecy, Peter goes on to preach and say. Tongues in 1 Corinthians are explicitly differentiated from prophecy by Paul. And then um, tongues in Acts are evangelistic. You know, they say we hear them telling uh, in our own tongues the mighty works of God, whereas tongues in 1 Corinthians are described primarily in terms of prayer, songs, thanksgiving. That is, it's primarily not towards you, it's primarily towards God. And then finally, if I haven't lost you or bored you to death (laughs) with these already, tongues in Acts, it builds up the hearer, the listener, whereas tongues in 1 Corinthians, if there's no interpreter, just builds up the speaker. Um, And the clincher for me was this. If Paul was speaking about known, I mean, sorry, if he was speaking about earthly unknown languages in 1 Corinthians, I think it would be rather strange for him to use that gift so much in private and yet be so worried about it being used in public, given the fact that, I mean, the Roman Empire at that time was an extremely, extremely cosmopolitan world. I mean, people... They, they would come from all over, and they would speak languages from all over. Like, why would he be so worried that, like, Eglamitish might be spoken on Sunday by a tongue speaker? How would we even know that somebody who speaks Elamite doesn't, isn't there in Corinth, uh, there in the worship service? Why would he use it so much in his own private prayers, but he'd be so worried that we would use it in a public worship service? And why? Okay, how about this? If I were to give, let me give you this example. What if I, uh, today, uh, started speaking Mandarin to you? Uh, and I, I don't know Mandarin at, at all. Uh, it is not a language that, that I have learned. It would seem to me that if I started to do that, you would at least, even if you didn't know Mandarin, and there might be somebody here that does, you would still recognize the fact that I was speaking Mandarin, right? It would be quite the sign that I'm speaking Mandarin right now, or I'm speaking Arabic, and I've never learned that before. Whereas if I just got up and started, you know, babbling gibberish, then, yeah, it would seem like, to me, one makes perfect sense why he would want to uh, restrict in public worship, and the other it's not nearly as clear to me that he would. So, <clears throat> having said all of that, does it mean that we should no longer be Presbyterians and we should become Pentecostals? Like, it's sort of, sort of the so what? Like, what do we do? What do we do? And I may not even have convinced you that the, the possibility that these are non-human languages, but I'll come back to that in, in a minute. What should we do about this? But first, we have to tackle an even thornier question, and that is, well, if that's tongues, well, what is the gift of prophecy? <laughs> because Paul here stresses that prophecy is, is really the good gift, the gift that builds up the church, and therefore Christians, we ought to be utilizing the gift of prophecy in public worship, or at least they ought to be using it in their public worship. What is prophecy? I, I mean, normally we say this, prophecy is like the Old Testament prophets, The gift of prophecy is the gift that Jeremiah had, the gift that Ezekiel had, Isaiah. What they were doing in the Old Testament as as prophets, thus saith the Lord, a bold declaration of God's truth. Uh, They heard it, they spoke it, they didn't flinch. Uh, If that's the fact with the gift of prophecy that he's talking about in 1 Corinthians, if that's what it is, then yeah, um, I definitely don't got it. (laughs) And 
I can't imagine that it's still around because he has given us the final word in his son and in, and in, the, in the Bible. But sometimes we'll say something else, like prophecy is, uh, it's telling the future. It's having the ability to, to see things that you have no way of knowing or seeing. And may, most people assume that definition of prophecy. It's true that many of the Old Testament prophets, they could somehow, in a murky way, see into the future. But if you read their writings, you find that for every one prediction that they make, they, they make basically 25 other pronouncements of judgment. <laughs> They're basically, you know, condemning again and again the injustices that were present and perpetuated in their society. I mean, they're just, they are relentless. They are hammering the people again and again of their unfaithfulness. And they would go to wild lengths to demonstrate the judgment of God, you know, using their bodies or other props to show that God's judgment is is here and he's going, it's coming, right? That doesn't sound a whole lot like what we just read that was going on in 1 Corinthians. Sometimes in a third option, people will say, well, prophecy was like the oracle of Delphi, where you, you would go to uh, the temple and there you would speak to a prophetess or a prophet. And you would ask the prophet or the prophetess a question like, you know, will I have a child in the next year? And the prophetess would answer you and give you a very cryptic reply, <laughs> sort of a, a, a yes and no kind of answer. It, it was always very clear insofar as they would speak very intelligible words, but it was always rather cryptic. One, don't know one way or another. Um, yeah. What, what is prophecy? Because that doesn't sound like what was happening in Corinth. This is what was happening in Corinth, verse 26 and following. You know, what then, brothers and sisters? Whenever you come together, you know, each one has a hymn, a, a teaching, a revelation, a tongue, uh, or an interpretation. Everything is to be done for building up. It goes on, verse 29. Two or three prophets should speak, and, and the others should the evaluate. And sometimes they say the others here is actually the elders of the church. The elders would listen and they would evaluate whether or not a prophecy was, you know, a valid or invalid. Um, but if something has been revealed to another person sitting there, the first prophet should be silent, for you can all prophesy one by one so that everyone may learn and everyone may be encouraged. I don't know about you, what is going on in that church worship service? It is really hard to tell. Um, I, I have a hard time envisioning that elders would be able to uh, evaluate prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and, and say, yes, that's, that's right, or no, that's not right. In fact, they tried to do that in the Old Testament, and, and they evaluated them wrongly. Um, perhaps this conclusion is correct. Maybe, very tentatively, <laughs> maybe prophecy does somehow have to do with uh, an impression that God lays heavily upon somebody's heart and spirit. You know, I feel in my spirit God is communicating something to you or, or to this community, a strong impression on the heart that, one, that must be communicated. One scholar summarizes it like this, and I'm not saying that this is it. I'm saying this is one option. Prophecy is a gift of the Holy Spirit, combines pastoral insight into the needs of persons, the needs of communities, 
and in situations with the ability to address these with a God-given utterance or longer discourse leading to challenge or comfort, judgment or consolation, but ultimately building up the um, addressees. While the speaker believes that such utterances or discourses come from the Holy Spirit, mistakes can be made. And since believers, including ministers or prophets, remain humanly fallible, you know, claims to prophecy must be weighed and tested. <clears throat> I, I don't know. I'm not sure. I, I know that that definition corresponds in some ways to what we read in 1 Corinthians 14. I also know that that definition has been abused in churches so many times before. The, the whole, like, God told me to tell you to marry her. Thus, you know, this is the word of the Lord. That type of thing. God told me that we are to sell the building and we're to, to do this. How many, I mean, how many of you, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you have felt burned by other Christians before, you know, claiming a word from the Lord and telling you to do this or that that was nowhere found in the Bible. I just know that, that, that if that definition is correct, it's, it's ripe for all kinds of mistake, mistakes and abuses. Let me give you a very historical example of this. George Whitfield was one of the most, you know, influential Anglican pastors in, uh, in America. You know, he was one of the founders of the Methodist Church. Uh, he was a brilliant preacher, and thousands and thousands of people came to faith through his preaching. Well, Whitfield had a son that was born to him, a little baby John. And when he was preaching, several days after John was born, he got up in front of his congregation, and he said, the Lord has showed me that John will be uh, a great preacher too. John dies of pneumonia six months later, and Whitfield is deeply chastened in his spirit. And he has this time of intense personal reflection. And later on, he says, you know what? Um, I was carried away by, by my ego. Like, it was absolutely my ego. I made a prophecy, and it wasn't true. And I, I brought the name of God into disrespute because of it. And I am so, so sorry. And that was one of the, the, the greatest preachers that America has ever known. Which leads me back to the uh, original question. Should Christians today earnestly desire spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy? I, I don't know. <laughs> or should, uh, should Christians earnestly desire the gift of tongues too? Yeah, maybe as a private prayer language. I, I, I don't, I don't know either. Um, I, I, I just come with three takeaways and they're these. Number one, 1 Corinthians 14, pushes us to a greater humility and a more generous attitude towards other Christians. At least it does for me. I mean, I've already told you about how dogmatic I was in my earlier years. I mean, I, tongues is bogus and prophecy, not a chance. And today, you know, the, the older I get, and you hear people say this, but ah, you, you have to experience this too. The older you get, the more you realize that you didn't know half as much as you thought you knew 20 years ago. <laughs> Right? You didn't, you didn't know half as much as you thought you knew when you came out of seminary. Not even half of it. You know, I know that my, my Christian tradition, the Presbyterian tradition, has always prioritized the intellect. And 
And I was an engineering major in college. I'm sure that's one of the reasons why I was drawn to this particular Christian tradition. I found in this tradition a great focus on the mind and you know, sermons. They tended to be dense and pastors tended to be educated. And, and worship services were definitely not chaotic, were they? <laughs> no, I mean, we would sing like with these red trinity hymnals and there was a pipe organ and Everything was like very you know, done by the book. And culturally, that fit me really well. I appreciate many aspects of my tradition. I also wonder, I mean, have I, have I missed something? I sense that I have. I know, I'm almost positive that I've missed something, I've missed something big. And number two, that kind of leads me to the second takeaway. Cautious but open no longer. A phrase that I have used before, and you may have heard other Christians use to describe their attitudes towards spiritual gifts, is I'm cautious, but I'm open. You know, cautious because I, I don't want to be a, a crazy charismatic, and, and I don't want to be claiming all kinds of things that God told me this or that. Cautious, capital C, cautious, but open to, open to the Spirit and open to new possibilities. Maybe maybe you have said something like that as well. What I want you to notice, though, is that attitude, while it is commendable in some respects, is not the attitude that Paul commends to that church. He says in verse 1 that he advocates not for mere openness towards spiritual gifts. He commands eager pursuit of them. You know, being just open to spiritual gifts, maybe that's not enough. Like, Is it enough to be just open to hearing the scriptures? Is it enough to be open to sexual purity? Is is that enough? It's it's almost like if we say um, we're going to be cautious about our father's gifts, what does that say about our our beliefs about our father? (laughs) Right? I mean, what does that communicate about our father? Do we believe that our father is going to give us inherently dangerous gifts? Do we, do we really want to approach our Father's gifts with a, a fearful caution and, and trepidation? Or, or should we approach our Father's gifts like, you know, a child, the way they run down the stairs on Christmas morning to receive the gifts that their father and their mother have given to them? I, I just know that I want to become much more that um, than the cautious but, but open side. I, I'm not saying that we should all become charismatics. I'm also saying not saying... I am saying that we should not dismiss our charismatic brothers and sisters and our Pentecostal brothers and sisters. I mean, there's so much commendable uh, about them. Perhaps those particular gifts have ceased, but I'm not sure that they have. I, I do know that we all need more of the Spirit's life inside of us, which leads me finally to number three, and I'll finish right here. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14 reinforces it's spiritual gifts and Sundays. What are Sundays for? What are, we, what are these? What is this for? It's for building each other up in Christ. You know? And you know, I really appreciate those of you who, who take that attitude towards Sunday. Like, yeah, you want to come and you want to hear good music. And yeah, you want to come and you want to hear a stimulating sermon. But, but you don't really come as a consumer of religious goods and services. You, you come because you want to 
build each other up in Christ. You want to help each other see Christ. You want, you want to give to each other Christ. You know, Paul's worry is that somebody's going to show up to church on Sunday in Corinth and everybody's going to have had the meal and the food and the wine with the feast and the Lord's Supper. And these people are going to start babbling out loud in tongues and blah, 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 and showing off their spirituality that way. And a visitor is going to think, did I just walk into a cult? Did I just walk into the feast of Dionysius? <laughs> are these people drunk or are these people crazy? His vision for them is, it's got to be his vision for us. Like to take whatever spiritual gifts that we have from the Father and, and use it to, to lift that, the other person up. And you know, those of you who come early before service and you're there to greet people and to talk with people, and when visitors come, they, they don't walk into an empty room because you came early. I mean, you do that because you're, you're lifting them up. And those of you who stay late and you talk and you ask good questions of each other and you get to know one another, you do that because you see that as all part of your, your worship. And, and for those who can't come early or can't stay late, I'm not, I'm not I'm blaming you. But, you know, the question to ask in all of our spiritual gifts and all of our Sundays is, am I really here to build my brothers and sisters up? And am I really here to exalt Jesus in some way? Because if it doesn't do that, um, then it's clearly not what God wants. Amen.